LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Courtney Brown of the Farsight Institute, who joins us to discuss his new DVD release, Atlantis, The True Story. Thousands of years ago, a technologically advanced human civilization thrived on Earth. Some have called it Atlantis, but it was real, not a mythological story. Their civilization was not undone by a natural cataclysm, but through the reckless misuse of their own science. Only a few thousand people survived, and everyone on Earth today is related to that one small group of survivors. The Farsight Institute's Atlantis Project is a breakthrough scientific study that combines the use of remote viewing, US government underwater imaging data, genetic knowledge, and a hefty dose of open-minded thinking. Remote viewing is a mental procedure that was originally developed by the US military and used for espionage purposes. Now, civilians employ the same methods or procedures that are derived from those methods to study human history. Using data collected by two of the most accomplished military-grade remote viewers of the day, the true story of what happened when Atlantis collapsed is now told with striking detail and clarity. Forget what you learned in school about human civilization being a recent phenomenon. All that you see today, all the wonders of human achievement, have all been done before, and it ended very badly. This time, we need to learn from our past mistakes. We humans have a complicated history on this planet, and we need to discover that history, not censor it, if we are to be a species with a destiny. Hello and welcome, Courtney, and thank you so much for joining us again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, Greg, it's my great pleasure to return to your show, so I thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, Courtney, today uh, we're going to discuss one of the major remote viewing projects that you've been overseeing at the Farsight Institute in recent years. And this particular one is has been documented on your website, but in particular in a recent DVD release, uh, which is called Atlantis, The True Story, which kind of gives it away somewhat. Before we dive into that, just for listeners who are not familiar with it, perhaps you could just set out briefly what remote viewing is, because that's your that's what the Farsight Institute is all about, and that's your key technique for divining your information. I'm the director of the Farsight Institute, and our website is www.farsight, that's spelled like seeing far, F-A-R-S-I-G-H-T dot org, because we are a non-profit. We are the really the only venue, I was going to say the largest, but it's obviously the largest because they're the only venue where you get full-blown scientific studies of experiments dealing with the nature of time, physical reality, but also explorations using remote viewing as it was done. 
and developed by the United States military and used for espionage purposes or methodologies that are derivative of those procedures. So I'm the leading scholar in the subject of remote viewing as it's done using those methodologies, military or military-derived methodologies. And what it is, it's a mental procedure where in the old days people would have called it psychic, but we don't like that word because it's associated with people who do other things. These are very highly structured data collection methodologies where people are trained to perceive images, senses, all the five senses, hearing, touch, sight, taste, and smell, across time and space to be able to perceive things in the past, present, and the future at any distance as well. Now, this totally violates the classical and relativistic laws of physics, of course. So we now understand that both Newtonian and Einsteinian physics are subsets of a much larger reality and an entire new collection of physical principles, physical understandings, physical laws, are a whole new physics is going to be necessary. And that the, the delay in recognizing this on the mainstream is simply because the implications are so profound, so big, people are having a very difficult time wrapping their head around it. When change is so big, so monumental on an intellectual basis, it often takes generational change to make the impact in the mainstream rather than people saying, oh, it's a good new idea, let's adopt it. You really have to wait till people who are older retire and die off, and then people who are introduced to it from the beginning become sort of middle-aged and are able to accept it. It's a very difficult set of things to wrap your head around when you've been taught one set of things, then you realize that everything you've been taught is either incorrect completely or very partial, meaning it's only part of the truth. So uh, remote viewing is a mental procedure where people actually go into a room at a desk. They're doing this totally under blind conditions, meaning a remote viewer cannot work if they know anything at all, at all, about the thing they're supposed to be perceiving, like that so-called thing is called a target, which can be people, events, places, across time and space. And the remote viewer sits down at a desk with a pad of paper and a pen, and an hour later comes out with like 20 pages of detailed data following a very structured data collection set of procedures describing that target, that thing that they were supposed to be perceived, again, without knowing anything about it. The only thing they were told is, there is a target, describe it. And in the experiments that we do at the Farsight Institute, we typically just send people an email that is non-leading, saying there is a target, send me the session. That's it. And we like sending non-leading emails because then they don't see our face or hear our voices, no inflections on our voices or anything like that. So they just get an email saying there's a target remote viewer, and then you know, when they're done, they send us the session, and it's a complete detailed description not ambiguous. These are military or military grade. These are military grade or higher remote viewers. They're not. They're civilian, totally civilian, but they're at the level of the military or much higher than the military used to have. So that's what we do. And I am usually the chief investigating, the chief investigator for the projects done at the Farsight Institute. But I don't do the remote viewing. The remote viewing is done by people who were trained, say, under Glenn Wheaton, who came out of Special Forces Intelligence, at the, and it works at the Hawaii, runs the Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild, and actually was the character played by George Clooney in 
the Man Who Stare at Goats. Glenn was an official, uh, an official uh, consultant for that movie. And, um, and for example, also Lynn Buchanan, who came out of an official program, remote viewing program at the D Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, and he teaches controlled remote viewing. And I work with viewers that have studied or worked with him. And so those people, in fact, the character paid, played by George Clooney was given the name Lynn as a tip of the hat to Lynn Buchanan. So it was a composite character, sort of mixing Glenn Wheaton and Lynn Buchanan together in that, in that role. Anyway, but that's what the remote viewing is. And so it's a way to get information across time and space. Okay, now what's the background to the Atlantis Project then? Do you have a particular interest in that? Is this something that you've ever... I've never been interested in the Atlantis legend. And we did not use the word Atlantis for this project when it was started. In fact, I always thought the whole Atlantis legend was something like, you know, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, just a, a fiction movie, just a, just a crazy idea. I never, never thought of it in terms of something that was real. But we have some images that were on Google Earth on the bottom of the ocean with the underwater imagery on the bottom. And if you go to our website, www.farsight.org, and go to the third link in the nav bar, it's called Atlantis, um, you can actually see these Google Earth images. And one of them, a thousand miles west of Morocco and Portugal, three miles deep, it looks like a dead ringer for a submerged huge metropolitan city and a city as you know a place uh, that was that's covered with sediment and i mean it's clear as day it's some type of place where something some buildings used to be oceanographers back in the original days when this google earth underwater data came out in the early parts early years of this century were saying um don't get excited those are simply technical artifacts of what we call ship tracks. Now, I know what ship tracks, I happen to know ship tracks. And I looked at those things and I said, you gotta be joking, those are not ship tracks. Ship tracks are like railroad tracks. The underwater imagery is gotten by ships that work under contract almost entirely by the from the US Navy. So these are governmental data. It's very important to remember that all Google Earth underwater data are governmental data in origin. So the US Navy hires these ships and these ships using sonar go in back and forth parallel overlapping strips to cover the entire bottom. Now, if they don't go in overlapping strips, they just go off into the boondocks. They just go off in a single direction and it produces what's called a ship track. That means that you have two, it's like a railroad track. Think of a railroad track. You have two exactly parallel lines, exactly parallel lines. And in the middle, between those two lines, you have really clear high resolution imagery because that's right below where the ship is. The ship is directly above it. So the really high resolution imagery between the two parallel lines and on the outside of those two parallel lines, the imagery is really foggy and fuzzy. So you can clearly see a ship track is A, it's straight, it's got those two parallel lines and it's really high resolution stuff on the inside, really low resolution stuff on the outside. And I looked at the anomaly on the bottom of the ocean and, and the Atlantic Ocean, three miles deep. Those aren't ship tracks. I mean, in my opinion, any idiot can see that those are not ship tracks. Ship tracks are so distinctive. That is clearly, in my view, stuff that's covered with sediment. Now, I'm not saying that the oceanographers are lying. It might be that they just 
that they just had such a hard time wrapping their head around the idea that there could be something down there. They just assumed it was ship tracks. Uh, just like somebody is, you know, assuming almost any explanation for to avoid coming to the most obvious conclusion. So I simply differed in my opinion about what these things were very strongly. And also there was another anomaly at the bottom of the ocean, and it's also on that page, our Atlantis page at the Farsight Institute's website, farsight.org. Go a little bit further down, you'll see an, an, uh, another picture from Google Earth that is a series of a rectangular grid, like a checkerboard, of holes in the ground. They're clearly holes in the ground, and they're arranged like a checkerboard in rows and columns. They're clearly artificial. They're not whale droppings. And so I said, that looks like a mining operation. So let's find out what that is as well. So uh, there we, we had those two pictures. And so I said, let's just send the you know two really good remote viewers. So I sent Dick Algeyer and Deborah Duggan Takagi, two remote viewers that work under Glenn Wheaton at the Hawaii Remote Viewers Guild, to those locations to take a look using totally blind procedures. The whole remote viewing using a number of different descriptions for targets to get the what the locations looked like now, plus also what they looked like when they were at the prime before they were underwater, and also what the locations looked like just at the moment they went underwater. So that a whole set of remote viewing took about seven targets, and it took about a year for both re remote viewers to finish them. During that entire year, they had no idea what they were remote viewing. All they knew is there was a target, remote view it, period. So they, and they had, to my knowledge, never been given a target of an underwater thing like this, uh, underwater civilization type thing. So this was new to them. Uh, they wouldn't be expecting this type of thing from us. Well, they came in, being the quality remote viewers that they are, uh, with the level of training of a decade or more, uh, using these highly structured procedures, they came in with spot-on data. I mean, they described this, the anomaly a thousand miles west of Morocco and Portugal, three miles deep. They described an, an ancient city in ruins that was submerged. It was submerged by a sudden inundation. And then they described what it was at the moment that it was being submerged, what happened to it. And they described it what it was beforehand. And same thing with the, uh, the situation down near Antarctica. And so when we got this, this sort of clear understanding, and when you, when you hear, hear the sort of rest of the story, you'll see why we said, okay, I'm going to use this word Atlantis to describe it. Because I didn't know any shortcut way to describe all that we've got. We've got a technologically advanced society that did something to destroy itself, um, and they ended up submerging under the water, that fits a whole bunch of the Atlantis mythology, so uh, or the the legends of myth of Atlantis. So I said, either I can describe it as a high tech civilization on Earth that destroyed itself and submerged, or I could just say the word Atlantis and people would sort of get it. So that was how are we. That was the beginning of our use of the word Atlantis. It was more of a marketing thing, in the sense of getting people to understand with one word what we're talking about. We're not buying into the Atlantis legends or the myths. We're buying into just the data that we have, and they seem to correspond with a great deal of those legends and myths in an interesting way. It is a loaded term, isn't it, Atlantis? Because as you say, people sure can connect with it instantly and they get it. But then again, as, as Graham Hancock found out to his cost, you can become associated with the quote-unquote lunatic fringe but you know, by the mainstream. 
It's a very difficult situation, but on the other hand, it, we weren't going to get around it. But as soon as we started describing this ancient civilization, uh, technologically advanced and so on, everyone is going to say it, the word Atlantis. So we weren't going to be able to avoid the word. So I said, we, since we can't avoid it, since people are going to use it anyway, we might as well use it and frame it in terms of the data that we've actually got. You know, I, I might mention, Greg, what the civilization was like. They were, we, we now know who they were, what they were like, where they were, and what they were doing, and what happened to them. We know the whole story. And it's all contained on that DVD that you mentioned, Atlantis, The True Story, which you can also see the entire first 15 minutes of it, which is a lot, uh, on for free, right on our website. It's a, we have it up as a YouTube video. And you get the whole background, and it's very convincing. By the way, I should mention also, at the time that we were doing this, near the end, just when we were wrapping up the remote viewing, Google Earth came out with a 2.0 version of their underwater imagery. And as you can imagine, most of the anomaly was erased. And the oceanographers were saying, see, we told you, we told you, everything's fixed now. And so I looked at it, this new imagery, and I said, this is crazy, nothing was fixed. The only thing that happened, in my opinion, and it's very clear when you look at the actual pictures, is very high compression algorithms were used to smooth the bottom, to smooth the data. And this is evidenced by, and I also have these pictures of so-called Google Earth 2.0 on the same page on the website so you can see it. You can see the evidence of this extreme high compression. If you have a picture of your Aunt Matilda and you see her brown hair and your red lip, her red lipstick and her blue skirt and her pink blouse, well, if you start compressing that over and over and over, really high compression, all the color will wash out and you'll just get gray. So basically what it does is compression takes raw file sizes, which are way too big to use for Google Earth, and finds pixels that are similar in value and nearby and gives them the same value. So it doesn't have to remember so many numbers. And that works okay as long as the compression is not extreme. But if the compression is extreme, you get situations where the color gradient is completely washed out and you get just one color. And the evidence of that is when you get those patches, very large patches of one color that follow pixel lines. So that's what we see. We see these very large patches right, right on the anomaly that follow the pixel lines exactly. And inside these patches, it's just one color. And so when the oceanographers are saying, see, everything's fixed, what basically they were saying is, is that you know, there's been some smoothing, but the smoothing is not what you want to do if you have real elevation changes. You can make the Rocky Mountains look smooth if you compress it long, long enough. And so, uh, in my opinion, I differed from what they were saying. So I am not saying that any oceanographers, any scientists, any institute or whatever actively corrupted, you know, acted to corrupt the Google Earth data. I am simply saying that I don't take at face value, any image, especially in today's day and age of having a teenage Photoshopper being able to do anything at all with an image, we need, you know, images are no longer trustworthy, any image. So you need something else to un uncover the truth. And it was interesting when the scientists, oceanographers were talking about, see, everything's fixed. I didn't hear any talk at all about the old ship line story. So the ship line story was like dropped. 
like like it never happened. Uh, it was almost like wishing it never 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 occurred. And then now a sort of everything's fixed story came out. Well, you know, the the everything's fixed story was even more unbelievable than the original story of the ship tracks, which was totally unbelievable in my opinion. And so I said, what we need is another way of of getting this stuff. Remember, I'm not saying that anyone corrupted the Google Earth data, a scientist or institute or anything like that, because I, I can also point out that these are, and you have to remember, governmental data. Governments can do anything they want with these data before any scientist, oceanographer, or anybody else gets their hands on it. So we need some other way to get to the truth of what this actually is. So when we did the remote viewing, these were really great remote viewers. These are not people that get ambiguous data, a line here, a line there, and you're trying to interpret that. These are really great people that have that are, have really good drawing skills, really good artistic skills in being able to sketch out what it is that they're seeing. And these descriptions are totally unambiguous. The pictures are as clear as day, underwater large imagery, structures on the bottom of the ocean that covered with sediment, the whole thing. Now I can sort of cut to the chase a little bit and say, that the civilization component that was 1,000 miles west of Morocco and Portugal, three miles deep, think of a very large Manhattan, a very, very, very large, like one quarter the size of Portugal, a very large urban area in which the architecture was of the vaulted ceilings, grand archways, um, but they, they did, you know, of the type that you'd see, say, in New York, or London during, actually more like New York during the 1940s and 50s. Think of Grand Central Station, Penn Station, things like that. These old, older styles that had domed building, arched, you know, a lot of arches, things like that. Now they also had, uh, you know, electric walkways and escalators, and they had a rush hour that was comparable to any of our bad rush hours. I mean, they had tons of people going to work, uh, hustling along, and so on. But that was basically a living urban environment. So the area down in the Antarctica region that we also have images for, that rectangular, that rectangular grid of holes, that was not like that. There the architecture was more like a modern skyscraper type with squared off buildings. So that was a military, scientific, industrial complex down there. And the floors for the buildings often went as deep as they went up. So they were very deeply submerged as well as going up into the air. But the architecture was squarish, rectangularish, and tall, um, broad, everything from warehouses to like, you know, tall skyscrapers that had a rectangular orientation. So that was also the area where a major secrecy-cloaked scientific experiment was being done that led to their demise. So basically what happened was the they had a source of energy that was very clean, crystalline-based, much cleaner than our nuclear reactors of today. And they could have powered their entire civilization on that. But they were also looking lustfully at the heat that's in the center of the planet. So I'm gonna say something now, which is what killed them. These are our ancestors, we are their descendants. So when I say them, I'm not talking about an ancient people in a distant galaxy, far away aliens, these are us. And we're behaving very much like we did then. 
with Secrecy Cloak Science. And what they did is they had a project <clears throat> to drill through the crust of the earth to get to the heat below. Now, I'm going to say this, and this is going to sound wacky, but if you, if you consider it, let your head wrap around it for a while, you'll get to appreciate the truth of it. This planet that we live on is an absolutely horrific planet. Horrific, bad, not good planet for a long-term civilization to be on. We have major calamities that grind humanity down to a pulp every few thousand years. We're okay for a thousand, two, three thousand years, and it seems like everything's okay, but something happens which knocks us down to nothing. And if you want solid archaeological evidence of this, it's not mainstream, it's not taught in the universities, but it's unambiguously correct anyway. You can read Robert Schock's book, he's a professor at Boston University, uh, at S-C-H-O-C-H, and his new book, Forgotten Civilization, is largely about places like Easter Island, but also Gobekli Tepe, Gobekli Tepe in, in Turkey, which is a large archaeological site, you know, hundreds of acres large, it's big, with the people that had stone-making building capabilities at least parallel to those who built the pyramids in Giza, and they built huge and, you know, extensive stone structures that were also living environments that they purposely buried, meaning they had them, they were on the surface, and then they buried them as if they were trying to protect themselves from something coming above, like a solar corona mass ejection or something. And they buried it, and it's only now being excavated, but the excavations are ongoing and, and huge. So, like, it's not like some button that was found and you're trying to figure it out. These are huge archaeological sites and the carbon dating on the sites is absolutely unambiguous. They go back at least 10,000 years. So the idea that human civilization is a 3,000 year old thing is just stupid. It's just nonsense. It's not true. And if you want further evidence of this, there's there's a Michael Cremos at C-R-E-M-O. Great and very fat and hugely well-documented book forbidden archaeology, meaning mainstream archaeologists, the ones you get at the university, they're connecting the dots with the archaeological evidence, but they're connecting only the dots that they want. They have a preconceived theory that mainstream, that mainstream science wants to support that civilization happened only 3,000 years ago. Before that, we were all hunter-gatherers, but they're omitting a whole bunch of data that don't fit their theory. Now, one of, the, one of the most common problems that mainstream science does, you know, you think of mainstream scientists as these smart intellectuals. The reality is they're people with emotions just like everyone else, and there's certain things that they have trouble wrapping their head around. And so what they do is they find the data that fit their theory. They find the data that fit their theory. Now, that sounds okay, but it's really stupid. You cannot find data that fit your theory. You have to use all the data not the data that fit your theory. You have to fit. You have to use all the data and apply your theory to it. And if your theory doesn't match with all the data, you have to throw your theory out. But the very common practice of finding the data that fit your theory lead to immensely erroneous theories. For example, I could, in this ludicrous example, come up with the theory that gravity only works upwards. Gravity only pulls things upwards. And the only data that I will look at is things that go up. So when a kid throws a ball upward, I'll look at it, but I will not look at it when the ball comes back down. If the rocket goes up, I'll look at that, but I won't look at it come back down. 
So if I look at things only going up, I'll have a theory that corresponds 100% with all the observed data that gravity only works going upwards. But obviously that's wrong. I'm omitting data that obviously show just the opposite, that gravity pulls things back down. So that's what's going on with mainstream archaeology. There's tremendous amounts of data that are simply not being examined and being forcefully suppressed. People lose their jobs for it. People lose their careers for it. They're denounced. They don't get invited to meetings. You know, mainstream science is a very tough business. I'm a scientist. I work at a mainstream university. It's a very tough business. Things that don't... I, by the way, I do not do any remote viewing stuff at the university. I'm an applied mathematician working at a social science program. But nonetheless, I, I know my colleagues. Mainstream science, they're a very tough bunch of kids. And they, you know, if they have some ideas, they don't budge from those ideas very easily. So basically, this planet is a very bad planet to live on because for a civilization to have a long-term future, you really need a million years of uninterrupted anything. You need a planet that's not going to, you know, rock and roll you. But we live on a planet that's an 8,000-mile ball of liquid molten rock. That's crazy. And we, it has an eight-mile thin crust, eight-mile thick or thin, however you want to call it, crust on top of an 8,000-mile diameter ball of liquid molten rock. It's a balloon. It's crazy. And it's absolutely unchallenged. Every 26,000 years or so, we have magnetic pole shifts, which severely disrupt the magma flow, the, the flow of the lava. We have earthquakes. We have all types of stuff. We have a very thick atmosphere. The weather is very rough on this planet. And in addition, we have regular coronal mass ejections causing things often called Carrington events. Last time we had a minor one was in 1859, and that lasted for a few days. If that happened today, now that, that wrecked the telegraph system of the day, electrocuted a couple people, burned some buildings down, one-inch sparks were flying off of the uh, wires. So if that happened today, we would be thrown back to hunter-gatherer conditions uh, for perhaps as long as a decade. It would completely wipe out all of our electronics. And those things happen regularly. And that was a minor one, the 1859 one. So if you think in terms of hundreds of years, you can be safe. You're saying, oh, everything is okay, just relax. But as soon as you start thinking in thousands of years, a few thousand years, three or 4,000 years, these coronal mass ejections with these strong electromagnetic pulses, they happen regularly. And uh, over a few thousand years, you're not going to escape. And so something happens to knock this planet down to, human, you know, the human component of this planet down to nothing. So what happened with this Atlantean civilization is they lucked out. They were left alone in terms of these natural calamities long enough to develop technology. And their technology was about 100 years more advanced than what we have today. So we are very close to what they were. They had large flat panel computers, uh, computer monitors, all, uh, you know, um, control rooms that look very much like our control rooms of today with, lot, with panels of control panels, with control panels and big flat panel monitors that they're watching. They, their, their technology was more advanced than ours in some respects, but we're very close, so it's, it was very comparable. So what they did is they decided to drill in a secrecy-cloaked scientific experiment. They didn't announce to the public that this is what they were doing. And they did this 
off the coast of what we now know as Australia, east of Sydney in the direction of New Zealand. And they drilled down there. They broke through the crust. Now, when you see a volcano go off, it, it's normally a crack in the crust that over a long period of time, some lava seeps through, builds up a pocket, and then pops. Okay, that's totally different from what they did. They drilled what's equivalent of you know, a tunnel going through, connecting Britain and Europe uh, that cars can go through. They essentially built like a tunnel straight through the crust. You know, a big thing with the huge drill bits, a straight channel right through the crust. And they thought they could control it. And when it actually happened, the, the DVD, we show it and really clear, we bring it out, put it all together in chronological order. They had about five days to watch their experiment go belly up. And they realized it was, you know, they were, they were going to have an ex a potentially extinction level event. And they blew a hole in the size of the planet that had an explosion approximately the size of Australia. It was huge, the explosion. Now, what happened? Why do we know that's where it was? And I'll also tell you, we know when it happened. It happened 70,000 years ago. That was not long ago. So why do we know it happened there? Well, there's a whole, this is now where you turn into, Dick, into um, Sherlock Holmes, where you're putting the clues together. First of all, off the coast of Australia, that's called the Admiralty area and the direction of New Zealand. That's the thinnest spot on the crust. Also, it's the largest concentration of lava rock anywhere on the planet. Also, it is the exact, not approximate, the exact antipode, antipode, which is the exact opposite spot on the globe from the anomaly that we're looking at 1,000 miles west of Morocco and Portugal, three miles deep. The antipode is the exact opposite spot. Now, when you blow a hole in the crust of a balloon, like the Earth, like the Earth you're releasing a lot of pressure. So you're going to have to get a, a dent or an indentation somewhere to compensate for that lack of pressure. Where will that dent happen? It happens in the antipode, the exact opposite spot. So they blew a hole out in the area near New Zealand and the antipode, which is the area 1,000 miles west of Morocco and Portugal, that sunk. And that's what happened. It was secrecy cloak science. And during the five days, and the remote viewers are great in describing the entire detail, all under totally blind conditions, which is amazing if you think about it. We even on the DVD have a live session done by Dick Algar, totally blind, where he's describing this thing on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And just to see him and his facial expressions doing it on a whiteboard in front of a video saying, oh, what is this? How did they build that thing? You can't just go down there with a submarine and build that thing. It's like fused out of rock. It's a huge thing. By the way, some of the technology is still down there and some of it is still radiating energy, apparently. So there are no people. None of the remote viewers described any people down there. But some of the technology, the infrastructure stuff is still not collapsed, even though it's three miles deep. That some of those, some of the structures down there were apparently really well built, and they're now underground, under the water, under the sediment. But apparently, that some of them are still buzzing. Uh, some energy stuff is still there. In terms of the Antarctic region, I can now answer a mystery 
that probably not many people have thought about, but if you think about it for a little bit, it will become a big mystery in your mind. Why are there so many governmental digs, U.S., Russia, China, why are there so many governmental digs going on in South in, in Antarctica? I guarantee you they're not looking for mastodon bones. <laughs> I mean, the reason there's so many, there's so much governmental activity digging in Antarctica with bases and so on in Antarctica is they're looking for technology. There's stuff under the ice and it's easier to get that technology by digging through the ice, even under the harsh conditions of Antarctica, than it is to go three miles deep off the coast of Morocco and Portugal into the ocean. So, uh, so that's what they're doing down there. So, you know, you might sort of wonder why this big governmental investment in Antarctica when all you have down there is ice. It's not ice. They've got stuff down there, technology that's, you know, potentially a uh, hundred years more advanced than we have here, which is sort of close, but I mean, we could understand it and utilize it. Anyway, that the, the big the big bottom line message for this, and this comes across clearly in the DVD, is we're very close to being able to repeat the same mistakes that we did in the past. And that's why people have to know the story. I can also say why we know it 70,000 years ago. There's something called the Toba Catastrophe Theory. Toba Catastrophe Theory, and you can look it up in Wikipedia, T-O-B-A, Tango, Oscar, Bravo, Alpha, Toba Catastrophe Theory. And that refers to Lake Toba in Indonesia, where they think a volcano blew up and killed off all humans on the planet 70,000 years ago, except for two, four, six, eight thousand surviving pairs of people, meaning there may have been more survivors, but only two, four, six, eight thousand pairs of people were having babies. So we are all descendants from those two, four, six, eight thousand pairs of people that survived. Those, this information is known by the geneticists. And the geneticists have determined that this event happened about 70,000 years ago, and that this is how many people survived. And it was a horrific volcanic event. This, they, this much they're pretty much in agreement with. And they almost got it correct. They think, Lake Toba in Indonesia. That's actually not where it happened. But in terms, if you look at the globe, you're still in the right area of the globe. Indonesia and Lake Toba, that's on the other side of Australia. So they're still in the same ballpark area. But instead of going to the west side of Australia, the north, actually it's the north side of Australia, you need to go to the southeast side of Australia. But you're still talking in the same general area. So they basically got it right. So the, the, where the actual drilling and the blowout occurred was east of Sydney uh, in the direction of um, New Zealand. That's where the blowout actually occurred. And again, the evidence of this is it's the exact antipode of the civilization component that sunk that we have clear pictures of. And also that spot is the thinnest crust in the planet. And it's also got the largest, by far, concentration of lava rock anywhere on the planet. So it's clear that that's where the blowout occurred. Just a small point with regards to Antarctica itself. Now, uh, uh, this isn't up to date necessarily, um, but the last time I looked, the certainly mainstream scientists had estimated that the that continent had been icebound for 400,000 years. Uh, would that necessarily be relevant to um, what you're speaking about? They're wrong. They're wrong about so many things. Uh, they, if you ask those same scientists, 
they'll say that there was, you know, they'll say that this this anomaly on the bottom of the ocean never happened, that it's just ship lines or something like that. I mean, they're totally wrong on so many things. The remote viewing data clearly shows it, it wasn't a, a particularly warm area. It wasn't like tropical rainforest or anything like that. But it wasn't Antarctica covered in ice. And if also, if you look at other archaeological data, uh, some of which is described by Robert Schock, he's a geophysicist uh, in his book, Forgotten Civilization, uh, the, the ice patterns that we now know of down in Antarctica are, you know, we're, we're clearly not there. In fact, the, the last ice age melted just a few thousand years ago. So and when that and, and we have regular, you know, we have regular pole shifts, you know, magnetic pole shifts as well. So we have had, if you think in terms of 400,000 years, we've had many cycles, many cycles where there was essentially no ice down there and then essentially more ice. So, you know, it goes back and forth, uh, waxing and waning, ebbing and flowing. So the idea is that, that of that being ice for the last 400,000 years, yes, there are people that say that, but they're just plain dead wrong. I'll just mention at this juncture uh, for benefit of listeners that um, I've actually had Robert Schock and Michael Cream on. So if people care to go and dig in the archives, they can find those interviews. But just to backtrack on a couple of little points. Um, the Actually, actually, Greg, before... Before you um, do that, can I mention something? Oh, absolutely. This is absolutely one of the most important reasons why venues like your show and people like you are so important. You interview not just people like myself, but also Robert Schock and Michael Cremo, and you help get information out. If you study the CNN website or the New York Times website, you simply don't get information from these people out. You just, this it's just this information, even though... For example, Robert Schock is dealing with um, a lot of information dealing with Gobekli Tepe, which is a huge archaeological site. You can actually jump in an airplane, jump in a jet, and go to Turkey and look at it yourself. It's simply not reported. But it's like, it's not like something ambiguous. It's not like something small. It's huge. And you just simply don't get it on the mainstream media outlets. So this is why, and you know, and the carbon dating of this site is unambiguous as well. It goes back at least 10,000 years. So this is why your efforts as a radio broadcaster and you personally and venues like you are so important. And the people that actually listen to your show and show similar and support your efforts are actually really helping the planet in great ways because without people supporting what you do, there would be no access to this information. You can't get it at the university levels. And you can't get it through any mainstream media outlets, yet it's so absolutely unambiguously true. Um, clear as day, if you look at the archaeological evidence, even though it's not taught at the university, it's still right in front of you. And you can still, if you want to see it for yourself, hop in a plane and go to see it. So, uh, you know, the very fact that you've interviewed Cre uh, Michael Cremo and, and Robert Schock is just further evidence of the importance of sort of that whole effort that you're doing. Anyways, I'm sorry to interrupt what you were saying. Oh, not at all. I really appreciate the, uh, the the comments. I may, however, be about to reveal my ignorance. Just a quick question. The Google Earth images that we were discussing at the start, presumably yeah. there's satellite images. With regards to ship tracks and that sort of like sonar on the seabed, yeah. why would that activity of ships leave anything that could show up in a, a satellite image? Okay. The imagery that's for dry land 
is satellite image. The imagery for the water, the satellites don't do the water stuff. The imagery for the water is done by ships. So if you're looking at mountain ranges on the bottom of the ocean, that was not gotten by satellites. That was gotten by ships that float on the surface of the water under contract by the United States Navy, and they're using sonar to map the bottom of the ocean. So if you're looking at the Rocky Mountains or you know Britain or Europe or something like that, something that's on the surface, those are satellite images. Those are done from space. But the space stuff doesn't go into the water. Okay, I, I just wasn't sure. Again, it's just a, a simple technical point that uh, lots of people might know. I wasn't sure if satellites were capable of penetrating the water. No, they just, don't. They just see dark. They just see dark blue. And it was a great question because probably a lot of people had that same question. That concludes part one of this interview. Be sure to tune in next time for part two. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com legalize-freedom.com where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests and if you're feeling generous make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com.